Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, I speak to Sonia Ben Wagram Gormley, who is an associate professor at George Mason University and the deputy director of their biodefense program. Sonia has written extensively on the uh, proliferation and non-proliferation of bioweapons, being one of the key voices to have emphasized the challenges that organizations, tacit knowledge, and other factors have caused for states and terrorists that have attempted to acquire weapons of mass destruction. As Sonia argues, policymakers still often underestimate just how difficult the steps to building a bioweapon are, and that should really matter a lot for people who are looking to also design effective strategies that aim to prevent their spread. Given the recent attention that the intersection between AI and bioterrorism has gotten, uh, and the prospect that AI could lower the barriers to bioweapons, I was really curious to hear what Sonia thinks about all the recent discussion. So in this interview, we talk about where the belief that bioweapons are easy to make uh, came from and why it's been difficult to change, why transferring tacit knowledge is so hard, and in particular, the challenges that rogue actors face. Uh, and lastly, as mentioned, what Sonia makes of the AI bio discourse and what types of advances in technology would cause her concern. I found Sonia's work and perspectives very informative. I especially appreciated hearing her get into the nitty gritty details of what the existing bottlenecks in her domain are, and using that as a way to reason about what it would take for a technology to be transformative in it. That evidently requires a lot of expertise, but it just strikes me as a really fruitful approach to reason about AI and other trends more generally, often trends that involve fuzzy concepts that are hard to pin down and get lost in. So I'm excited about this approach, uh, not just in bio, but in other areas too. And without further ado, here's the episode. So these days I deal mostly with um, the effect or the impact of um, emerging technologies on uh, security and particularly biosecurity. And a lot of it also um, affecting uh, biosecurity issues um, in uh, certain regions of the world, including Russia and China. So um, maybe to frame our conversation, I think we'll be discussing, especially in the first half uh, of the interview, a lot um, about your book, Barriers to Bioweapons. Um, mm. And in that book, I think that you really critique the view that making bioweapons is like very easy. That like all you need, uh, I think, to like kind of quote uh, your book, biomaterials, scientific knowledge uh, and equipment. Um, maybe to start things off, where do you think that view came from? Or like, why do you think that view was so persistent um, such that like you writing this book, I think, really added to the to the discourse? I think there are uh, several sources. Uh, I, I can think of uh, three major reasons. The first one uh, is the fact that we think about um, bioweapons and bioweapons nonproliferation uh, by using a framework of analysis that was uh, primarily developed for nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons uh, cannot be produced unless you can have access to the fissile material. So highly enriched uranium and plutonium-239. And to do that, since these uh, materials do not exist in nature or not enough to, uh, to make a bomb, uh, countries or, or terrorist groups would need to get the technology to enrich uranium or reprocess plutonium. And that technology is, is very uh, expensive. It's very specific to weapons development. And um, it creates a, a clear signature, and there are barriers to um, acquiring that technology. So uh, for nuclear weapons, uh, if you don't have access to that, uh, to that technology, and it's because it's specific 
And because there are barriers, it's very difficult to access the technology. Then it becomes uh, very difficult to produce a weapon. And so this framework of uh, looking at proliferation from the material point of view has been adapted to biological weapons. And, and that doesn't work because biological weapons uh, are not uh, conditioned by, uh, by the access to material and technology because that technology is uh, is dual use. So the idea, so because um, technology related to bio uh, developments is dual use, it means that it is easily accessible, commercially accessible. And therefore, uh, from there, we uh, reach the conclusion that bioweapons are easy to produce because you have a, you can, anyone can have access to the technology. Therefore, those weapons are easy to produce. So I think that's the first mistake. And, and that using the nuclear framework of analysis implies that we don't pay attention or don't pay sufficient attention to understanding what is the barrier in bioweapons development. So if it's not technology access, then what is it? Yeah. yeah. And, and that I found out myself um, by doing a uh, conducting a research project uh, that was a an oral history of the U.S. and Soviet bioweapons program. So I interviewed with a colleague of mine, a former U.S. and former Soviet bioweapons scientist. And when I say scientist, I mean technicians, uh, scientists, biologists, people who are specialized in different areas of bioweapons development, so production, uh, testing, weaponization, etc., as well as managers and administrative personnel in order to have a, a broad idea of what is it uh, that conditions uh, bioweapons development. And uh, so through these interviews, um, I found I found out that uh, the key barrier to bioweapons development is uh, access to knowledge. Hmm. Because uh, civilian knowledge in biology uh, does not translate uh, easily to weapons development. And um, to produce a bioweapon, countries have to, or scientists have to develop a bioweapon specific expertise. That's not the same as the expertise they had. If they are, you know, very well known virologists or bacteriologists uh, in the civilian world, uh, that expertise does not immediately apply to bioweapons development. There are specific expertise, um, or, or there is specific expertise that needs to be developed. Mm. We saw that in case studies uh, related to the uh, Soviet program and the US program. Uh, that, uh, for example, in the case of the Soviet program, there was a new uh, facility created in the 70s uh, called Vector, which is one of the core facilities of the Soviet bioweapons program. And when it was created, it was created uh, bringing in uh, people from the local university of Novosibirsk. And these were people who were very you know, at the top of their expertise in virology, in smallpox. Uh, so they knew, you know, they were very competent experts in their field, but they had never worked on bioweapons development. And um, that facility, it 
uh, and it took them about five years to develop that bioweapons expertise. So for five years, the first five years of the life of the facility, uh, the personnel just uh, did uh, uh, experiments to learn how to work with certain agents in a certain biosafety environment, how to learn certain techniques and certain processes that uh, are used only in the bioweapons field and that do not exist in the civilian field, in regular uh, laboratory work. And so it took them five years with people who... Um, were really at the top of their game. The, the director of that facility was a very famous uh, smallpox expert. Um, and, and they were able to do it within five years because they were trained by, by bioweapon scientists from a different Russian facility. So it, it's uh, alone, uh, if they didn't have access to those bioweapons experts, it would have taken them much longer. And in the American program, for example, when I interviewed uh, American bioweapon scientists, uh, former uh, bioweapon scientists, uh, they told me that it took them about two decades before they felt that they knew enough about the agents they were working on uh, to really um, use them as bioweapons. So, it, and, and the U.S. program started from scratch with no you know, prior bioweapons expertise. So you see the that yeah. uh, you know expert and in the U.S. program also had access to lots of people from uh, universities from MIT to um, Harvard to Cornell. I mean, uh, high level scientists, and yet, uh, according to them, it took them about two decades to really develop that expertise, that bioweapon specific expertise. Yeah, maybe just to recap or to kind of stand it back to make sure I'm understanding this. It sounds like. Uh, a lot of the initial policy framing is in terms of uh, like nuclear weapons, where there is this like mm -hmm. big emphasis on material access. For biology, that like doesn't seem to really hold because, as you mentioned, many things are dual use. There's many like good reasons to have access to biomaterials such that they can't be regulated or kind of limited in access in the same way. But still, we have this puzzle that, despite there being perhaps easier material access, if we like look at the world, there aren't that many bioweapon programs. And as you mm -hmm. mentioned, even when the US tried. Um, and had a lot of resources, there was a lot of difficulty in getting this. So there must still be some barrier here. And you point to this idea of knowledge um, mm -hmm. as like maybe, and this transferability, especially from the, I guess, more consumer or like uh, civilian use case to the weapons uh, and like terrorist or like misuse case as being a really difficult step. I'm curious if that is like something specific about biology that makes that transferability of skills really hard in contrast to say, nuclear energy to nuclear weapons, um, or if it is just the case that there are like many hurdles. And whilst, you know, with bio, we might overcome the initial hurdle of material access, we still falter at like one of the key ingredients that you need. Um, or if there's something very particular about biology here that makes this transferability and this need of like very minutia detail uh, very important or very essential. Uh, it's not specific to bioweapons. So there is one thing that is specific to bioweapons, but the, the issue of uh, acquiring the weapons specific expertise is also a, a problem in the nuclear field. Um, there, were, uh, there was research uh, previously in the mid 90s that uh, also based on interviews of US uh, nuclear weapon scientists who, sh who indicated that um, it takes about five to 10 years to transform a 
a physicist, civilian physicist into a nuclear weapons physicist. It's not this idea of or this problem of acquiring weapon specific expertise is not specific to bio. What is specific to bio and that you can't find in um, nuclear or the chemical weapons field is that the uh, raw material that is used in bioweapons is uh, living microorganisms. And there are a variety, all kinds of viruses, all kinds of bacteria, toxins, and each of them requires different types of expertise. While in the nuclear field, there are two materials that you need to produce in a, a nuclear weapon. And in the nuclear field, you have this issue of acquiring or developing the weapon-specific expertise, but there's the problem of access to material, which is complicated. So you have two barriers. In the bioweapons field, you have one barrier, which is just the acquisition of knowledge, but that um, acquisition of bioweapons expertise is made complicated by the fact that the, uh, the, the, the material is really, really unpredictable. Mm. And it's not one expertise, it's multiple expertise that uh, that's needed. Yeah, and I think this maybe nicely leads us onto this uh, other concept that you really emphasize in your book around tacit knowledge. So because, you know, living organisms are so unpredictable and you have this like really complicated mapping of needing all of these very specific inputs, like and getting those right in order to like get the output right. That like often when it's just like humans doing this, we don't really know like what is going on or can find it really hard to express what you actually need to do right um, in order to get you know, a certain cell to work in the way that you wanted to. Um, there's this great blog post by uh, Erica uh, D. Benedictus, uh, who says that like one of these terms in like biology is scientists talking about like what works in their hands, because even, you know, just changing the person doing this changes all kinds of factors about like how hard you are crushing the cells or how you're angling your pipette and stuff. Um, and that all of this just creates this like real complicatedness. Um, yeah, can, can you flesh out a bit more about what you think um, kind of counts under this like term of tacit knowledge uh, and how sometimes maybe as well it gets misperceived um, like, with like what you're like concretely pointing to here of like what makes it difficult to, to acquire this expertise. So tacit knowledge is the kind of knowledge you develop through um, experimentation, firsthand uh, uh, experience and experimentation in the laboratory. And um, that's when you uh, conduct a process uh, it, which might be very well defined, clearly uh, explained in a book, for example, or something that is taught in schools, uh, but is really difficult to master because uh, it relies on um, visual and sensorial cues that uh, allow you to, de to determine whether you're doing the right thing. Uh, so, you know, for example, when uh, scientists talk about cells, sometimes they say they, they look really happy. What does it mean to see to say that a cell looks happy? So these are things that you learn through experience and experimentation. And th these are things that are uh, difficult to verbalize. You can't explain what it is a happy, what is a happy cell. Right. Um, and uh, so th there's tacit knowledge is formed of 
uh, knowledge that one cannot be verbalized or cannot be easily uh, verbalized. And because it's not verb, it can't be verbalized, um, very often uh, the person who owns that knowledge doesn't even know that they have it. They, they don't know that they are doing things in a certain way that allows the experiment to uh, proceed successfully or, or a task to be successful. Um, so that's that's one thing about tacit knowledge. Um, but uh, as far as bioagent uh, are concerned and work in biology generally, not for bioweapons only, but in the regular university laboratories, um, there are also all kinds of variables that cannot be measured. So for example, the humidity level, the pH of uh, the water, um, the ambient uh, uh, air uh, circulation, etc. All these can affect uh, bioagents because bioagents are very sensitive to the environmental conditions as well as to how they are manipulated. And that's where the tacit exp uh, knowledge uh, becomes important. Um, and so this is tacit knowledge is really all of the expertise, all of the knowledge, the know-how, uh, the skills that you develop through uh, uh, experience and through firsthand experimentation. Mm. And then to clarify, a lot of these um, inputs or like kind of requirements specific to a certain uh, biological pathogen as well. So for example, if I'm like very good at like doing, uh, or like, let's say like synthesizing horsepox, for example, mm -hmm. does that also generalize to like anthrax or is it because I need to hold my um, pipette differently or I need to, you know, have a different humidity or a different like whatever thing that there's a lot of variance amongst living organisms, despite them all being living. Right. So there, there are uh, great distinctions in behavior between uh, viruses and bacteria and toxins. And even within one family, you know, within uh, the virus family, uh, a, a smallpox doesn't behave the same way as, let's say, COVID-19. Right. So you have to have that specific expertise related to the agent itself. Uh, and so knowledge with anthrax does not transfer to knowledge with smallpox or another virus or even another bacteria. Because, um, if you work with anthrax, you, uh, your expertise does not help you much with uh, when working with plague. Right. So so that's uh, unique. The, the um, expertise is specific to the agent and does not translate to another agent. And and that's the complication with bioweapons development because and we've seen it, you know, with uh, state weapons develop bioweapons development and terrorist bioweapons development or attempt at developing bioweapons, when they they fail with one agent and move on to another agent, hoping that the next agent will be easier to uh, to deal with. In fact, they're creating more problems to themselves because they're starting from scratch. And they need to acquire that new expertise uh, related to the new agent they select. Mm. And that's why terrorist groups have been usually completely um, uh, unsuccessful in bioweapons development. But other uh, state programs, there's really only two state uh, states that have succeeded in developing bioweapons, and even them have the success is uh, was rather limited. And these are the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Yeah, all the others have have been unsuccessful or didn't go beyond the research and development phase. 
Mm, yeah, I really want to get into these case studies uh, deeper in just a minute. But maybe just to kind of go back to the very initial question I asked of um, why is it that there is this like belief amongst many policymakers, especially kind of in the post 9-11 period, um, that making bioweapons is like so easy. I'm still, yeah, kind of like interested in like why why that environment existed or like why that like narrative existed. Um, and why it is maybe also important from a policy perspective to correct this belief. Yeah. So, so one is we're using the framework, the uh, framework developed to for nuclear weapons that is based on material. So, uh, nuclear weapons are conditions by conditioned by the access to uh, the proper material and technology. Uh, that's not the case with, with bioweapons. So, applying that model to bioweapons doesn't work. Is that then just because uh, like nuclear weapons like came first or like were the bigger like policy proposal? Or, like why would it be the case that uh, we would like generalize so heavily from this model to this like other domain? That leads me to my other reason. <laughs> <laughs> and that we don't have an ongoing bioweapons program. So in the nuclear field, uh, we still have a nuclear weapons program. There's still one in the U.S. and in, in the, the five countries still have nuclear weapons programs. Even if they don't design new weapons or produce new weapons, those programs are still uh, in existence. And so there are experts who can say, no, that's not possible, right? Uh, or this is possible. And this, you know, to clarify and correct our understanding of what makes nuclear weapons development difficult. In the bioweapons field, there's no authority. We don't have a bioweapons develop, uh, bioweapons program in the United States. It was ended in 1969. Uh, in Britain, it was uh, ended in the 50s. France, same thing. Um, the, uh, the most recent is the Soviet bioweapons program, which was ended in the early 90s. So it's still uh, several decades already. So we don't have today an authority who can say, uh, what you're talking about is feasible or not feasible in bioweapons development. So that's one thing, the, the lack of, uh, of expertise, the lack of uh, uh, authority that, that can arbiter the um, debate that we're having on bioweapons does not exist. So everything is possible. And the other problem is that uh, since the 80s, uh, there have been this narrative that has been repeated uh, by government officials, by the intelligence community, including in the United States, uh, that says that bioweapons are easy to produce. You just need to acquire the three main ingredients, which is material, technology, and um uh, information, scientific information. And if you have that, then you can produce a bioweapon. And this ha this narrative um, has been uh, developed already. We can we find you know statements in, from the intelligence community, American intelligence community in the of the uh, mid 1980s. Um, and this has been repeated over and over and over again by uh government official from different on different sides not just republicans but democrats as well um the intelligence community uh, uh experts or biosecurity experts so the this has been repeated so often that today it's believed that's truth it's 
everybody believes that bioweapons are easy to produce. And it's very hard to correct the records, even when uh, the information comes from uh, former bioweapon scientists themselves. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you made there as well, that maybe because there aren't many bioweapons programs, we kind of like lose a sense of like just how hard like making this thing is in a way that's like maybe different to to nuclear weapons. It does make me wonder, and maybe this is like too particular a question, but how the policy mood is like maybe different in Russia or in like former Soviet countries where you maybe have like more of that like recent experience to like draw from about like how complicated or like fine-grained a lot of these issues can be. Um, it's hard to say um, um, yes and no. So um, when I was uh, interviewing some former uh, Soviet bioweapon scientists and from Russia, from uh, Uzbekistan, from Kazakhstan, uh, I remember one uh, interview with a uh, Russian scientist who uh, I asked explicitly, what do you think? Do you think that, and that was uh, soon after uh, the anthrax letters. So, and I asked him, so what do you think? Do you think a terrorist, groups, uh, terrorist group would be able to produce a an anthrax-based bioweapon? And his first reaction was, of course, it's easy. You know, you can, uh, and anthrax is so e- much easier to deal with than viruses, etc. And um, then I said, well, can you walk me through uh, the process, you know, from A to Z, from uh, acquiring uh, anthrax, processing it, uh, scaling it up, you know, uh, and then weaponizing it and then disseminating it. Could you go through the different stages of, of that weapons development and tell me how a terrorist would go about doing this? And so he went through uh, those stages in detail. And at each stage, he would say, oh, yeah, but they would have to to know this or they would have to know that. And they would have to get that type of technology and they would have to have those uh, this uh, variety of expertise, which one person couldn't have. So they would need to create a team, et cetera. And so uh, by the end of the conversation, he concluded, well, I guess it's not that simple. And I, I, I had the same exercise with former U.S. bioweapon scientists, and uh, and it was the same re- first reaction. Of course, it's easy. And then when you ask them to go through the process in detail, they realize that's not that simple. That's much more complicated than we think. I think this like point is like a really good and like important one. Yeah. That um yeah, often when like push comes to shove, you realize just how difficult things are. And that's also yeah. just from the vantage point of like you as an expert, right? I don't know the exact like qualifications that they had, but they might realize like, oh yeah, there's one particular thing that I know that actually ends up being really difficult. And then mm-hmm. still neglecting that like all the things that they don't know a ton about probably also ends up being that complicated um, right. and challenging. Um yeah, I, I maybe want to conclude this like um <clears throat> introduction section again with like asking um what some of the like policy relevance like implications like here are so um i can draw like maybe like two distinct reasons already like why we might care about this question of like how hard bioweapons are one is around like prioritizing 
um, mm. you know, I'm sure that like governments have like limited resources with like how they could combat terrorism or like rogue state actors. And you want to have a good calibrated sense on where the biggest risks are like likely to come from. Um, also within the life sciences themselves, I'm aware that um, because everything is like dual use, there are like real tensions between say confining uh, or like limiting scientific knowledge for mm -hmm. the purposes of like safety versus like accelerating progress, which also has like a lot of upside. Um, and that's all I think like within this like prioritization bucket. Um, but then there's also this like other question, which is like, you really need to understand like what the bio threat is and what the hard steps are in order to best combat them. And towards the end of your book, you give this like really interesting example about when it came to disarming the Russian bioweapons program and limiting some of this like brain drain, that this could actually have some really important implications. Uh, and I was wondering if you could like, yeah, maybe talk listeners through, uh, yeah, like what your, what your reasoning there was. Yeah, I mean, I, I will uh, just reiterate what you just said, that mischaracterizing the threat implies that uh, we develop policies that not that are um, uh, that do not deal with an, a, a, um, a, a real threat uh, and we ignore the uh, existing threat. So uh, after 9-11, uh, the U.S. has developed a uh, biodefense program in, that cost over six, uh, $60 million and uh, that was geared primarily to deal with a terrorist threat. Well, we know today that terrorists cannot, or at least up to this point, cannot produce a bioweapon. So a lot of money was wasted in an effort, wasted in areas that diverted our attention from the uh, real problems primary. And in the biofield, natural outbreaks are probably much more uh, likely than a threat uh, from bioterrorism. Uh, another danger of mischaracterizing the threat, and that's relevant uh, today, is this issue of disinformation and misinformation. Uh, Russia has been conducting a campaign of uh, disinformation about U.S. Uh, bioactivities in the former Soviet Union for a long time. But uh, uh, more recently, they've been, uh, they sharply increased the um, disinformation messages that they've been uh, spreading. And uh, basically, the idea is that the U.S. is uh, what they try to uh, make people believe is that the U.S. is um, using its support to other countries in the bio, bio um, research and bio surveillance field. Uh, as a cover for bioweapons development. And uh, and they um, spread uh, stories that make no sense at all uh, and that contradict each other, uh, but they really don't care because they know that people are going to believe uh, uh, whatever story is out there uh, because there's no understanding of what it takes to produce a bioweapon. So they have stories about uh, super soldiers that are being produced in Ukraine uh, to fight in Russia or during the in the war with Russia. Uh, they are talking about developing uh, the U.S. and Ukraine developing a uh, a genetic weapon against Russians that would target only the Russians. And even Russian scientists came out and said, that's not possible. <laughs> There's no gene that makes you a Russian. So, yeah. Um, so that that's another problem, you know, being a victim uh, of uh, disinformation uh, by 
other countries, and in this case, it's uh, in Russia. The other uh, challenge is uh, that if we don't understand how bioweapons are produced or were produced, when uh, we deal with or we try to develop uh, non-proliferation um, policies, as was the case uh, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, where um, the policy was primarily to uh, fund scientists uh, so that they stay in their former bioweapons facility uh, so we know where they are. That way they don't go to Iran or North Korea and help them uh, produce bioweapon. So uh, support projects at the former bioweapons facilities and often uh, support projects that are related to the agents that were in the past used in bioweapons development. Mm. And we found that when we studied uh, through the oral history project that I that I did with one of my colleagues, when we studied the different type of expertise and different types of knowledge that was that were created in different facilities, we found that this uh, approach was perfectly fine for some facilities, but for other facilities, uh, that became a problem because, in fact, it, it was helping the scientists maintain the bioweapon-specific expertise that they had developed in Soviet times. And that's here br briefly that there are some, depending on how people work in different uh, facilities, uh, some of them develop um, personal knowledge that is unique to the person. Mm. And some of them produce mostly communal knowledge, that is uh, knowledge that is created by a team of scientists working together. And that is owned, uh, not owned by anyone, but owned by the whole, whole team. So uh, when it comes to personal knowledge, if you if you support someone to stay in their facility uh, to do work, uh, even related to agent they used to work with in the past, what happens is that they may maintaining their personal knowledge, but not the communal knowledge. Well, if you try to maintain teams in the same facility where uh, the main knowledge is communal, then you, in fact, uh, maintaining that communal knowledge about bioweapons development. And that is more threatening than, than personal knowledge, because we know that to produce a bioweapon, you need a variety of expertise. So if you maintain the teams together in the same place and uh, support work uh, related to bioagent that they used to work with in the past, then they maintain that uh, that expertise that can be uh, threatening if they decide to go as a team mm. in uh, another country, or if you know Russia decided to recreate that uh, their bioweapons program. So they have still that expertise available. Yeah, I find that such a like interesting and initially like counterintuitive like point as well. That yeah, when the Soviet Union like collapsed and people were like rightfully worried about how some of this like knowledge might proliferate, there's such an instinct just to like keep people where they are so that they don't like spread the knowledge. But in like yeah. keeping entire teams there, you're keeping that like tacit like knowledge alive than yeah. you would if you were to like more systematically like try to break people up because as you noted, um things are so specialized and you require 
a lot of different people without like very specific synergy or something like being in the same room or yeah. uh, continually working in the same lab. And I have to say that was also my instinct instinct in the early 2000s, where, you know, we, we need to keep these people where they are <laughs> in order to prevent them from proliferating. But it's only after uh, uh, studying really uh, specific expertise, specific facilities and learning how they work that you understand the distinctions and when it becomes important to have a policy that's much more flexible and not just a cookie cutter type of uh, uh, policy that uh, is applied the same way to everyone and to every facility. Let's maybe turn to how tacit knowledge, especially in the life sciences, like actually spreads and like what kind of proliferation then to worry about. Maybe one framing here is you've emphasized before that the life sciences are like very distinct in that they're dual use. You know, there's also civilian and a lot of like commercial applications here. And that kind of makes me think as well that there must be a lot of like interest and also like built up know-how to know how to like actually spread this tacit knowledge. If I'm a pharmaceutical company or if I'm a biotech startup, then I like want to make sure that like, you know, knowledge gets transferred and like find effective like ways to, to make that happen. All of science is also like based on this idea that people can build on top of each other's knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. So given, you know, these big interests to actually find effective flows of tacit knowledge, why is it that in the like bioweapons uh, like angle specifically, this thing is hard and how much harder is it than in, say, like your average commercial or, uh, you know, university scientific civilian uh, use case? Tacit knowledge transfers the same way, whether you work on bioweapons or in the civilian field. You know, uh, tacit knowledge is a area of study in economics, and it's been a long <laughs> area of studies for a long time. When I was a student and I did my uh, degree in economics, tacit knowledge was something we studied because... Uh, every time an individual with specific expertise left a company without training the person who was going to replace them, uh, that created all kinds of uh, problems that can be very costly. So um, industry businesses have understood this importance of not just letting people go, but making sure that the new people are trained with those who have those tacit skills. And uh, in the bioweapons field or in the, in the in science in general, um, uh, tacit knowledge is acquired through experimentation, right? Uh, personal experimentation, and it it is transferred uh, when people work together side by side. And it can be uh, in a model of, uh, you know, master-disciple type of uh, relationship where the lead scientist uh, takes under his wing or her wing a postdoc and work with them in the laboratory. And um, they, may, it, they may not know exactly what is being tra uh, transferred, but by mimicking or by working side by side and doing things the same way, uh, that expertise is transferred uh, sometimes without anyone knowing that some kind of important knowledge was uh, was transferred. Sometimes it can be it can be visual. So a an individual will look at someone someone else uh, doing uh, um, uh, carrying out uh, a task in a certain way. And slowly they mimic them and they try uh, consciously to do the same thing. 
uh, it doesn't happen or it doesn't succeed often right away because uh, seeing something and repeating it, doing it are two different things. So they have to, uh, as you were uh, talking earlier about crushing cells, you have to make sure you know that you need to crush the cells, but how strongly, you know, how much pressure you impose or you, uh, you use, um, how do you, ho you hold your pipette and, and things like that uh, have an impact on how knowledge is transferred. Yeah. But basically in the laboratory, uh, knowledge is transferred this way through uh, direct interactions between people, but also long-term interaction, not just a couple of days or a week together. Um, and there's a lot of uh, research in the field of science and technology that studies that, that looks at people working together in the lab. And they show that uh, it takes about a year, several months before someone can acquire an expertise or tacit uh, skills uh, that cannot be verbalized. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm I'm curious, like how that specifically gets measured. Like one thing I'm imagining here is like how long it takes for a postdoc to you know be able to do a certain like experiment like independently and like looking okay. at like how long these things take. Um, and I guess like also like how much variation there is here, like even within the life sciences or something yeah. of oh this like particular step takes x days or y weeks or something to like acquire being able to like do the whole experiment like independently uh, or maybe experiment is like the wrong word here but like synthesizing this like specific uh, pathogen from step a to step c um that takes say how long it's hard to say <laughs> there's no uh i mean if we could if we could really identify or measure how long it takes to uh learn specific expertise and then repeat it um uh that that would be uh i mean a big deal because uh, i haven't seen that and i've i've tried um to work on that to identify how long it takes to lose that expertise mm. and it really depends on the environment so i'll give you an example there was um uh, a friend of mine uh kathleen vogel wrote uh, a paper about uh, the um, synthesis of the poliovirus that was took place in the early 2000, 2002, I believe. And uh, she found that a lot of the, ex I mean, much of the experiment uh, hinged upon a specific um, task which aimed to create uh, the cell extract that would be used to grow the virus. And to produce the cell extract, they used a uh, dense homogenizer, which, which was used to uh, crush the cells. And they found that uh, that uh, that task, which is which seems very simple, and again, is taught in schools. Not there's no secrets about it. You know, uh, the secret is how you do it. And uh, in the laboratory, there were people who could do it better than others. Uh, some uh, people had even found that if they bought a dance homogenizer uh, from uh, a commercial producer uh, provider. Uh, that dance, that equipment doesn't work very well. So they had their own uh, equipment made, uh, custom made uh, to fit their own purposes. Mm. And uh, but what's interesting is that uh, there was a case of a postdoc who was sent to the laboratory in New York uh, from Belgium 
to explicitly learn that technique of crushing the cells in order to be able to produce a cell extract that could be used later to, to grow the virus. Uh, he spent about a year at the uh, laboratory in New York, and after a year, he was able to uh, produce a cell extract that could uh, that could be used to grow the uh, um, the virus. But when he went back to his uh, laboratory in Belgium, he was not able to reproduce his uh, his work, and simply because there are other variables uh, that could not be measured and. They think that perhaps the water, the pH of the water was different. So that had an impact on oh, wow. producing the cell extract. Um, even in the laboratory in New York, they found that um, the bovine serum that they use for the uh, to produce a cell extract can have different characteristics depending on the season and depending on the supplier. Uh, so, and that affects their own work. Um, so they decided to always ensure sameness in everything. So always use the same supplier. Uh, make sure they get the bovine serum during the right season and not in the wrong season. Because all this, even in their laboratory where they know how to, to make the cell extract, uh, sometimes they failed because of those variables that cannot be uh, measured and will affect their work anyway. Maybe one thing to ask here is like how expensive or like costly and not just in like dollar terms, but also in time terms, like is a failure if like, because one thing I could imagine is like, look, every time I like try to crush these cells, it's going to be like essentially semi-random, like if it works <laughs> or if it doesn't work and the odds are like stacked against my favor. So should I just like try and do like a thousand batches and then like hope that like one of them works? Um, or if I like fail up at like one step, does that mean that I need to go all the way back to the beginning? And because, you know, organisms like take time to like grow and like stuff like these things are actually like very costly. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. How, how should I be thinking in terms of, um, how difficult a like setback at a like given, a given step is? Yeah. So, so that's an interesting question because that introduces another issue in science that we always forget. And that's the issue of trust. Mm. So, uh, scientists have to trust that something is uh, possible in order to achieve uh, the right results, I mean, the positive results. If uh, And that means that there needs to be a demonstration first. So in the case of the cell extract, uh, that uh, a postdoc from Belgium knew that it was possible to produce a good cell extract because he was trained by people who knew how to do it, even though sometimes they failed and they had to start all over again. Uh, and can be weeks of work that's wasted that way. Uh, or it can be months. It really depends on what's the process we're dealing with. If that postdoc had dealt with someone who was not as successful, who, or if he had... Uh, been trained by someone who didn't demonstrate that it was possible, he may not have persevered enough to eventually succeed himself. Mm. And that reminds me of a story about uh, a uh, an experiment that was described in a publication about uh, the development of laser technology. Um, and uh, in order, there's a, a process uh, in laser technology where um, uh, scientists have to use sapphire and have to um, 
measure the quality of sapphire. And they do that by putting, uh, hanging sapphire at the end of a thread, and that thread is uh, greased with uh, animal grease. Mm. Um, and that's very simple. Again, nothing very complicated about the whole process. Uh, but uh, the whole story is that during the Cold War, the Soviets always always achieved uh, measurements that were much higher than the measurements obtained by uh, European and American scientists, to the point where Western scientists thought that the uh, Soviets were just lying, making up uh, results. And it's only after the breakup of the Soviet Union that a Soviet, former Soviet scientist came to a laboratory in England and showed his colleagues, British colleagues, how they did it in Soviet times. And the trick was, instead of using uh, animal grease, they used human uh, skin oil. So they huh. would take that piece of thread and run it behind their ears or under their nose to uh, gather uh, skin oil. And, um, and of course, sometimes the skin oil, I mean, someone has dry skin, someone else had too oily skin, they really had to find the perfect oil. <laughs> That's funny. It's a funny level. job description. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he showed that. And while he was in Great Britain, in the British laboratory, he showed that they uh, and he obtained measurements that were as high as those obtained in the Soviet Union. So British scientists were suddenly, uh, it was demonstrated to them that those measurements, uh, as high as they were, were actually possible. Mm. And so they experimented with this technique for about a year. And after a year, they were able to uh, themselves achieve those high results that they didn't believe were possible during the Cold War. So the point that I'm making here is that uh, in order to, uh, there are all kinds of problems associated, particularly with the bioweapons field, because of the measure, the um, external variables that cannot always uh, be measured. But if you have a demonstration, if a scientist knows that a certain uh, result is achievable because they saw someone else uh, achieving those results, then they will try and try and try and try until they get it. Yeah. And sometimes, again, scientists will tell you, they try and try and try and try. They think they are doing exactly the same things all the time. It fails, it fails, it fails until, until it succeeds. And they don't know why mm. they are suddenly successful while they, they've been doing the same thing over and over again. On an emotional level, I do kind of like struggle with it where because it seems that things are just like really random, like both in terms of like for a given pathogen, like how hard is it to do for a given person? How hard is it to acquire the tacit knowledge given a, you know, certain professor, how good are they at like transmuting that knowledge that it's like hard to like rule out like, no, it is like impossible that a person with X months and Y dollars will be able to make pathogen Z, which when you're then worried about like terrorism or like biological like misuse is like really scary. But it does just like fundamentally seem to be an argument about like likelihoods or something that you need like many things to go right. Mm -hmm. So you're not just like rolling one dice, you're rolling like thousands and you need to like really be worried 
um, that like they all come up like snake eyes or something. Um, but then like given, you know, like specific risks or something that might just like still be like really worrying in expectations. But the point is, is that there's just like many, many steps here, um, many more than like people often think. Yeah, and, and I think we need to have a, a more nuanced analysis of uh, what's possible and for whom. Mm. Uh, if you're uh, thinking about terrorist groups who have no prior expertise, uh, they start with no knowledge at all. So to get to the point where they can uh, manipulate um, agents, bio-agents, and make them do something specific, mm. Uh, it will take them, the learning curve will be so steep and will take them so much time that it's become, it might be just impossible for them. Um, but if you're taking a scientist who have uh, had a career in the, in the civilian, you know, biology, uh, the learning curve will be shorter in the sense that they have the basics yeah. of biology, right? Now they have to acquire the bioweapons expertise. It may take them years too, but that uh, um, it will be less complicated. They start with at a, at a level that's much higher than someone with no expertise in biology at all. Uh, and if you're taking now former bioweapon scientists who have stopped, let's say, Soviet former Soviet bioweapon scientists who haven't worked on bioweapons for the past 30 years, uh, but are, are asked to produce a bioweapon today, their expertise is still there and it, it will take time to come back, you know, especially that those tacit skills, but it might it might be easier for them. Right. So the assessment should take into account uh, the uh, starting point, the, what kind of knowledge uh, exists at the start. Uh, mm. And then you have to think about the uh, the local culture. And that's what we found interesting also in this oral study uh, project, uh, that um, to be successful on a regular basis, in spite of all the variables that cannot be controlled, uh, uh, laboratories, scientists developed a certain local culture that is specific to that environment, to their laboratory. And you can find uh, evidence of that also in biology, in civilian biology, where there are some tasks that are complicated, you can see that the local culture is very specific and that allows to be more successful than another laboratory that may have experts as well, but doesn't have also the, that local culture. The like first point you you raised there, I think, like really stuck with me um, from your book as well. Um, there's this like concept, right, of like leapfrogging that uh, you can like maybe skip certain technologies or skip certain steps if they're kind of like handed down to you. So to take uh, you know a, like everyday like example, um, many countries like developing today don't need to have landlines because mobile phones work, so they can kind of leapfrog that particular step. Mm -hmm. um, but I think your book like really emphasizes that um, there are like limits to like how good this can be in like the realm of like bioweapons where like even if somebody hands you down really good or like kind of sophisticated technology because you yourself never had to like build up the knowledge that like when that machine or like when that like sophisticated knowledge starts breaking down because inevitably you will hit something unexpected uh, or something goes wrong because you don't have that expertise built in from the beginning 
um, you don't know how to deal with it. And you'll probably have like a harder time than if you actually like went through and tried to like build up that knowledge yourself. Um, yeah, and then turning to this like second point about like local cultures, this is maybe a, a good transition here to then talking about some of these like unsuccessful attempts by both state and non-state actors to acquire um, biological weapons, or I should say like failing to do so, um, where it seems that like in many cases, when you talk about Iraq and South Africa and like Aum Shinrikyo, it seems that like the local cultures um, in these cases were like extraordinarily bad um, in many cases because there's like a really bad self-selection effect between people who want to do something illegal um, and then how well they're like able to execute on this given like certain constraints. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, this is kind of, I guess, just like teeing you up here, but like, do you want to like expand on, on, on that point? Yeah, and, and that, uh, I think, helps, um, allows to introduce other variables that are never uh, taken into account when we make assessment about bioweapons development. And that's the issue of organization and management, um, which are uh, important in any weapons program, right? And in any scientific and technological endeavor, it doesn't have to be weapons related. Uh, management of a of a team of a program and the organization of a program affect how work proceeds and how successful it can be. And uh, and that's even more important in the bioweapons field because the key barrier to uh, bioweapons development is the acquisition of knowledge. And we know that if you don't have the right organization to allow, knowledge one to allow the creation of knowledge then the transfer of that knowledge to the right people within a team or a program and the effective use or efficient use of that knowledge then uh, the program does not succeed mm. right and so uh and that's even more complicated uh, for countries or groups that are trying to use, develop uh, weapons in a covert environment. Because a covert environment, uh, the, the, the priority for a covert program is to make sure that the program is not detected. And in order to prevent detection, they have to uh, adopt a, uh, an organization and a management model that contradict completely the needs for knowledge creation, transfer, and use. And that implies uh, compartmentalization and uh, fragmentation of a program, mm. uh, creation, creating barriers between people through either security clearances or uh, by limiting what different people know about what they are doing or the purpose of, that, of, of what they are doing. And by creating those fragmentation, that creates fragmentation in terms of knowledge transfer. So one person at the beginning of the process may be creating uh, important knowledge, but because of the, the organization that prevents uh, uh, free communication between people, that uh, knowledge may not transfer to the right person. Yeah, yeah. And so, and if there is expertise somewhere else that could help them solve a problem somewhere else in the program that could help solve a problem at a specific stage, uh, they, you know, scientific scientist A wouldn't have wouldn't know who to ask, you know, within the program because they they are not they don't communicate and they are sometimes they don't know who else is involved in, in the program, so that that. Um, 
in effect, in fact, is a good thing, right? For covert programs that they uh, create barriers to uh, to knowledge transfer, and, and that's that affects all program, whether they're chemical, nuclear, or, or bio. But even more bio, because the key constraint is knowledge development. I want to maybe like draw out what feels to me like a distinct factor. So there are like challenges that have to do with just the environment being covert. So to take the example of like Om Shinrikyo, they like, you know, had to hide being detected by like the Japanese police. And that creates a lot of problems because you have to like be in secret and compartmentalize and, and all the things you say. But then there also seems to be this like other self-selection thing, which is that like most of the actors to date who have tried to acquire biological weapons because they are a like massive taboo, um, even on like a state like level, um, they seem to be, you know, either corrupt actors or like easily corrupt actors, uh, autocratic dictators or like cults. And like those in terms of like, you know, local productive, like truth seeking cultures don't seem to be like the best fit here. And that like worries me somewhat as well. Um, it feels like really hard to like break down how much of it has to do with like just general covertness versus um, this like self-selection for like bad kind of local cultures. But to the degree that a lot of it has to do with like specific ineptitudes of like certain people if like only you know iraq had like a better like manager or something then i'm like really worried of like yeah like what if like the next bad actor just ends up being like really good at like management rather than it being innate problem of creating bioweapons um which is this like you know you have to be covert um and even if you're the best manager in the world this is going to be like a really difficult obstacle um but it doesn't seem to me at the moment at least from having read your case studies you will know this much better that the people like making these weapons were the best scientific like managers out there and they seemed in many cases to be like very bad <laughs> um and like kind of not in a you know to actually pull it off um but they had like other incentives such as money or prestige or just like people pleasing right but also i mean in all of the countries that uh, tried and terrorist group that tried to develop bioweapons, none of them had sufficient expertise, right? From the beginning, they start with nothing, right? And uh, in the case of Aum Chirurgia, for example, uh, the uh, people who were involved in their bioweapons uh, development had absolutely no expertise uh, uh, in biology, uh, they were the the head of the uh, of the program. I think had some expertise in an area of biology, but not uh, certainly not applicable, uh, or that would have allowed them to really understand the agents that they had selected for um, for work, which were anthrax and botulinum toxin. So in most cases, even state program like the Iraqi program. Uh, they may have had some uh, expertise, uh, but that expertise was not adapted to what they were trying to do. So in the Iraqi program, for example, uh, there was an expert in cancer, another expert in uh, uh, some kind of uh, area of virology, I believe, but none adapted to the agents they had selected. So they they also selected anthrax and botulinum toxin bacteria. Uh, so one, they don't have knowledge or they don't have expertise that adapted to what they selected to work on, which means that they have no knowledge from beginning. Mm. So here you already have you know the learning curve, <laughs> which is long. But the the other challenge of covertness is that, and it, and it would be the same with 
people who are experts, uh, who are competent scientists. I'm not, let's not say expert, but competent scientists. Yeah. Covertness uh, implies that you appoint people in certain positions that you trust. So people who are uh, who are not going to defect or who are not going to be easily turned by a foreign um, uh, intelligence uh, service. So uh, people who are uh, loyal to the uh, yeah. manager or the uh, person in charge. And loyalty sometimes doesn't go hand in hand with uh, competence in uh, a certain field. And you can see that if you look at the Iraqi bioweapons program, nuclear weapons program, originally uh, when they started, they had people who were competent probably not with knowledge applicable to bioweapons or nuclear, but they were competent in their field. And those people were replaced by people who were loyal to the government, mm. simply because there was a need uh, to ensure that covertness. And loyalty, again, doesn't mean that they have the expertise. Uh, and we saw that also in the uh, South African bioweapons program. At, uh, at some point, there was uh, a dentist who was uh, head of one of the facilities of the uh, South African bioweapons program, who had no expertise in biology, <laughs> in bioweapons, but he was loyal to the head of the program. And that's why he was appointed there. So I, I think that's the challenge uh, with coveredness that we really don't appreciate enough, that um, loyalty uh, is more important than competence. Mm. And that creates challenges to weapons development. Just a like off the cuff thought, but there seems to be like another channel that you can like add here as well, which is um, if the person, like the loyal person, like being employed knows that they're like not competent enough to like run this thing, um, how that then also in turn like changes their incentives of like how they want to be like stepping things up and things. It maybe links again to this idea of uh, what you were saying that scientists also need to like really believe like at the core that they are able to pull this off in order to be willing and to like put the grit or like manage people to put the grit in um, to, uh, to kind of succeed here. Or they might increase secrecy within the yep. program to cover themselves, to cover yeah. their failures. And, yeah. and that also works against uh, making any progress. So yeah, one thought, and this kind of like leads us into um, the second half of the conversation I want to be having, which is this kind of question of looking ahead. Um, mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think all of the examples here, so Iraq, South Africa, and like Amshan Rikyo are from the 20th century. And I'm sure that you must hear this like question a ton, but it is a really important question, which is to ask um, how much has changed? Like there have been such breakthroughs, especially in like synthetic biology, um, but also in like a, a ton of other domains. And now um, there's like a lot of discourse around artificial intelligence and how that might like intersect with um, like bioweapon programs or, or bioterrorism. Um, yeah, how much do you think that these things fundamentally lower the barriers that like even if they like mostly act on like material constraints rather than on like tacit knowledge and we can get to that like latter scenario as well even if like the main effect here is like to just like lower the like material entry to barrier maybe there are like ways in which this like does affect uh, tacit knowledge such as you no longer need like as big a team because you can automate some steps or um just because like more people have access to this now the likelihood that you find somebody who can make it work like increase um i guess like there's a ton to get into here but maybe like the headline question is like how much more worried are like you now uh, than you would have been like 20 years ago 
Well, you know, this this issue of uh, new technologies and how that might facilitate or uh, uh, speed up a process is very interesting because um, one, I think the mistake that's always made is that to assume that the technology will work by itself, mm. right? So, you know, uh, a PCR machine will work by itself. They, uh, uh, a another kind of machine or AI will work by itself. Um, the tool is a tool and it can help uh, facilitate some tasks or speed up some process, but that does not eliminate the need of the um, involvement of the individuals, of people. Because even with the PCR machine, for which is used you know, extensively everywhere, some uh, a former um, student of mine wrote her dissertation about uh, new technologies and how they affect the use uh, or the intervention of individuals. Do they work by themselves? And she found that even with the PCR machine, there are uh, only really one step that is automated, and it's the temperature uh, part. Mm. And uh, at the end of the process, humans are still involved to solve problems that are uh, created by the machine. So, and there were other research projects that showed that the challenge with new technologies is that uh, they create new problems. They may facilitate one aspect of a process uh, or automate a process, uh, but they create new problems. And in order to solve those new problems, uh, the individual using using the new technology needs to one have sufficient expertise to understand that there is a problem. Uh, where is the problem? Uh, at what stage of the process is it happening? Mm. And finding ways to solve that problem. Someone who doesn't have that expertise or prior knowledge. Uh, would not be able to understand whether the failure is due to uh, the fact that he did something wrong, or is it because the technology has created a new challenge? And in every, even the kits that are used to do to facilitate some um, uh, work or some tasks in in biology, they are used extensively. And if you look at um, uh, sites where scientists, you know, communicate with each other to ask questions, etc. You'll see that the, all the kits uh, create new problems, and in order to solve those problems, they ask their colleagues, and their colleagues say, "Okay, I did this. This is how I solved that problem." And that scientist will try to do the same, but it doesn't work for him mm -hmm. and or for her, and they have to come up with their own solution that is appropriate in their own environment. And so, uh, so my my biggest uh, critic uh, when I hear that new technologies are going to facilitate or speed up uh, the development of bioweapons, my uh, biggest critic is that a technology does not work on its own. We need to study the technology in the environment where it is going to be used, which means that we need to understand the technology as it affects the user and how the technology was developed by the developer. Because we found also, and again, there are all kinds of research on that, that the technology is in fact a, um, uh, a result of what the, de of uh, the assumptions and the tacit knowledge 
of the developer himself. Mm. And often a, te a technology is um, uh, introduced successfully in a new environment when the developer comes to that new environment and teaches the people how to use it. It doesn't mean that all the problems will be solved, but they will be in a better position to use that technology effectively. And so when we talk about AI, there's a lot of AI discussion today about AI and bioweapons. Uh, AI is the same thing. It's uh, If you don't know anything about the tool, uh, you don't know whether the tool is giving you um, solutions that are uh, um, feasible. Mm. And in the bioweapons field, you know if something is feasible if you if you produce it, if you try to produce it. And, and that's a key challenge that we don't understand even um, in former bioweapons program. Uh, scientists themselves faced cha new challenges when they they would tell you that the biggest problems start when you start making the stuff. Yeah, because there are unexpected problems that occur that they they really didn't think about, and sometimes they couldn't solve. Yeah, and so they have to go back uh, to the drawing board and start the process all over again. A lot of this feels like it has this like fundamental echo of the like tacit knowledge discussion that we had before. Um, in your book, you mentioned that like a very common mistake of like postgrads is to always use the newest equipment. But in many senses, that's actually a mistake because it means that the tacit knowledge that they acquired from their professors who didn't work with that new equipment no longer applies. Mm -hmm. And similarly, now you know incorporating new tools such as AI or such as like other things um, might again mean that like things actually end up breaking down and you don't know exactly what it is and like how to fix it. Um, I will say that it sounds like a lot of this is like more an argument for like the transformative effect that such technologies might have just ends up being slower to like kind of diffuse out or like for people to like learn that it's not the case that like AI gets developed today and then, you know, a year later or something, people suddenly know how to make bioweapons, but that there's a lot of tinkering and like experimentation that needs to happen. Um, but it doesn't comfort me in the sense that it tells me that like, no, this like new equipment you know, there's no way that people can like find out to like actually use it in order to like get through these barriers or in order to acquire tacit knowledge or in order to acquire knowledge that was like previously tacit. Does that feel kind of right to you or would you like reject like more strongly? And I'd be really keen to hear if you do, but then yeah. it is more that like, oh, these things just take time and maybe in 10 years I'll be really worried. But like right now, um, I don't think it's going to like change overnight. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, the technology does not work in a vacuum. It it works in a specific environment. And so I, I can't say for sure, you know, AI will never be used to produce by a weapon. I can't say that. But what I would say is that if we're worried about AI, we need to understand the environment in which it is used. And when I when we say used, what do what do we mean, right? Um, I think last year there was uh, a uh, uh, a group of scientists uh, uh, from North North Carolina State University, I believe, who also have a private company that designs uh, using AI. They design new molecules for the pharmaceutical industry, so to to produce new drugs. And as an experiment, instead of asking their tool to develop beneficial molecules for drugs, they asked them to develop molecules that could be used for chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. 
um and uh and that that became you know uh a uh, they wrote an article they didn't describe what they found i mean they didn't list what they found but they described the experiment showing that it is a threat um when i read that my view was uh so they the, what they found was that the the tool the ai tool came up with um about i think 30 or 40,000 molecules that could potentially use for chemical weapons mm. some of them were very close to uh vx you know very dangerous uh chemicals uh, chemical weapons and um my reaction when i read that was sure the ai came up with a list but they didn't produce anything they don't know if any of those molecules can be produced right mm. um and anyone in the pharmaceutical industry would tell you that uh, an idea on paper is very different from a drug. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes even an idea that, you know, when they, they start uh, developing it, it, there are some challenges in transforming the idea into a, a drug. But even if they do, then the drug can fail at any stage of development, including at the very end. Mm. You know, after years of uh, of development, they find that the third stage of human uh, testing, uh, the the drug flops, and they have to. Uh, uh, and that's you know, fifteen years of work that are uh, wasted. Yeah. And so, so the point that I make every time I I see something like this is that. There is a big distinction between an idea or thinking about what a tool could do and actually making things, mm. because this is where the problem, the biggest problem is. And then my other uh, critique is that uh, the tool without the user is just useless. You know, if you don't understand who is the user, you will not be able to determine whether the tool can be threatening. So the tool in itself um, is threatening only if it's used by people who can actually use it and transform what the tool gives us into something that can be threatening, and which implies understanding who are these users, what kind of expertise they have, uh, what kind of team do they have? What kind of organization do they have? Mm. Uh, all these things that are not addressed uh, when we make assumptions about new technologies. And also, I guess, like counterfactually adding, um, you know, knowledge or like capabilities here as well, like also matters. If your tool is like really good for the like, I'm going to make up a number here, but like 10 people who could already like independently synthesize like anthrax or something, um, then this like extra tool isn't that like counterfactually like important. It matters that it is like useful to the very specific group that with the tool could develop the weapon, but without the tool uh, couldn't. Uh, and mm -hmm. like that is like the group that you're like worried about. Yeah. And, and I'll give you an example that's probably more understandable to the general public is the case of Iraq and uh, uh, enrich enrichment of uranium when or Libya. When we found out that they got, uh, for example, Libya got centrifuge technologies from the CAN network, which was a, uh, a black market network of nuclear technology, uh, we thought, oh my God, they have centrifuge te technology. They can enrich uranium. 
Uh, same thing for the, uh, the Iraqis when they got centrifuge technology from a German supplier. Mm. Uh, they uh, we thought, okay, they have centrifuge technology, which means that they can enrich uranium and produce HEU, that's weapons grade, to produce a weapon. It turns out that in both cases, the centrifuge technology was uh, found uh, unpacked in the crates, uh, delivery crates, because they had no one who knew how to use it. Mm. And uh, they also had some parts that were, that were missing uh, that they needed to produce themselves, but they, they didn't know how to produce those parts because they didn't have the industrial and uh, knowledge capability to produce the, those parts. Mm. So again, uh, you know, if we, if we look at just the technology and what it could do, uh, we can come up with the uh, worst possible, you know, most dangerous threat assessments. Yeah. But if you look at the technology in combination with the user, then you have a more nuanced assessment. And that's why that's what that's the kind of message I would like to deliver with uh, this issue of new technology, new technology and bioweapons development, that we really need to have a more nuanced assessment of those technology based on who uh, what are the characteristics of the user and environment in which it is used. Yeah, well, one thing that seems really important here is like being specific and talking like object level. Um, you mentioned before, like, I don't know if like AI is going to be used for a bioweapon. And I'm like, yes, like, I don't think anybody knows. Like, what do you mean by AI? What do you mean by bioweapon? And like, who do you mean as like using it? Right. I think like pinning these things down is really important. But then, yeah, that makes me want to ask, um, and, you know, feel free to like forget the whole concept of like AI, but like, what would be a technology that, like, if it were to come about in the next 10 years, would really worry you in terms of putting down, like, barriers to bioweapons? So, like, one, you know, toy example that I can think of is just, like, an automated, like, lab helper where I can, like, show them my, like, test tube or, like, my Petri dish and they can tell me, uh, your cells look healthy or your cells don't look healthy. Um, and here are, like, some steps or, like, some common issues that, like, might be wrong here. Like, that to me, feels very scary based on the discussion that we had before. I'm curious if that like also scares you and if you see that as like possible or um, yeah, if there are like other versions of this um, where you would say like, yes, if this thing was possible, then I would be really scared. Um, and then I think, uh, yeah, like policymakers should, should really be paying attention here. That specific te uh, technology about whether, you know, a machine telling you whether the, the cells are healthy <laughs> or not, I think it, it, it would imply that tacit knowledge can be encapsulated in a technology that can recognize those things, uh, which I don't think that's um, really possible, right? Y you always need a human at the end of the, the chain or somewhere in, in the chain. What would worry me more, considering that the whole challenge of uh, bioweapons development is, or a large part of the challenge, I wouldn't say the whole challenge, but a large part of the challenge is to make, to uh, work with agents that are unpredictable, that unpredictable naturally, but also even more unpredictable in the environment. So if there is a technology that can uh, make the uh, agents more predictable in their behavior and that they do not change behavior or characteristics once they are outside in the air, mm -hmm. uh, that would be a technology that would, uh, I would say, facilitate uh, weapons development because that reduces a challenge 
that's specific to weapons, bioweapons development that you can't find in the chemical nuclear field because nuclear material or uh, chemical agents are more stable and they do not vary as much because of the environment and, and they are not living organisms, so they don't change themselves. Um, so that, that would be a technology that uh, can be worrisome. Uh, because it would solve one major challenge of bioweapons development. But again, it would not solve all of the problems, right? So uh, even in, in the nuclear field, you know, HEU doesn't change properties because it's raining outside or because it's too hot, right? It's HEU. Yeah. But using HEU uh, to produce, to develop a nuclear weapon uh, is complicated. And even in the U.S. program, the Manhattan Project, uh, the biggest challenges were more in engineering, uh, engineering problems and not so much nuclear related uh, issues. I do feel like there is like an importance in maybe uh, arguing for that, like, uh, you know, as a given technology doesn't need to suddenly make everything possible or like every step. It does feel that like if a technology can like really help me with like one step, then I would now have like the freed up time or the freed up resources to like focus on the other steps. And mm -hmm. that still increases like the risk a lot. Like, you know, my likelihood of success doesn't need to go from 0.1% to 100% such that like policymakers should like take it seriously. But even increasing from 0.1% to 5% um, would be a really big increase and like something that like we should be worried about, um, even if it doesn't guarantee that a given actor is like able to make a, a given pathogen. And if we had this kind of discussion or this kind of nuanced analysis, that would be great. But today, the challenge is every time we have a new technology, we go from zero to 100. Mm -hmm. there's, it, it, there's this belief that this new technology is 100% going to allow uh, or facilitate or accelerate some kind of development. Mm -hmm. and it's only after 10 years. We had the same uh, discourse about CRISPR. You know, 10 years ago, when it was developed, that was uh, the same uh, kind of dis uh, of discourse. You know, the technology suddenly is going to, to help produce designer babies and super soldiers and all kinds of agents that are going to be used for bioweapons and, uh, you know, genetic diseases, etc. Mm. And 10 years later, we're still trying to figure out how to, oh, we're still learning about the CRISPR system. We find out that there are all kinds of CAS protein. It's not just one CRISPR system, it's many. And they all each have different purposes. And they are diff difficult to control. So we still, uh, there are some uh, human trials for certain mm. to deal use CRISPR to deal with certain diseases, but it's very limited compared to what we thought would happen, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. So, so I think that that's the uh, the kind of nuanced analysis that we need to introduce in the debate. Every time there's a new technology, we need to look at it carefully and say, by how much is going to help? Is it going to be just half a percent? Is it going to be nothing? Or is it going to be 10%? And even if it's 10%, that's, as you said, a lot. Uh, and what can we do to prevent that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have that nuanced uh, uh, analysis right now. It's always yeah, zero yeah. to one hundred. Yeah, and then to like you know add another like extra layer of um, complication. It's not just the likelihood of it succeeding, but also if it succeeds, how bad is it? There's like a big right. difference between something being right. ten people to a thousand people to uh, you know being in the next like million 
uh, like Death Pandemic and, and yeah. what kind of have you. Mm-hmm. Um, you. You mentioned CRISPR there. I'm curious about um, another technology which I actually like don't see much discussed in like the bioweapons realm, which actually in of itself like feels informative. Um, and that is like how the internet has like transformed like any of the like bioterrorism like risk assessment and like what have you. It seems that especially with AI labs today, a lot of emphasis is being placed on making sure that um, large language models don't tell people protocols about how to say step by step make smallpox, which maybe previously was only accessible in some random PDFs, or you had to kind of like construct from one paper and then another paper in order to like synthesize and find together. And at mm-hmm. least this like particular um, risk that people are discussing feels super analogous to how I would imagine that the internet transformed things like in the 90s and like early 2000s. Um, but I wonder like if it did or like if people now like see the internet as like having been, you know, I'm not saying 0.1 to 10%, but at least in like relative terms, um, a meaningful step in allowing more actors uh, access to um, misusing uh, biology um, than before. So here there are two issues. The first one is what you can um, access through the internet or transfer through the internet is only explicit information. That is the kind of information that can be translated into words, but not tacit information. So all of the skills, that's the, the, every time we talk about information in threat assessment, uh, it's always explicit information. And explicit information is information that can be uh, transferred easily, including through the internet, but it's incomplete information. It doesn't give you, tell you everything you need to know to reproduce, even if it's a guide mm. uh, to, you know, how, a protocol, how to uh, to do to make something. That protocol does not include the tacit knowledge that the author uh, of the document owns and the tacit knowledge that is essential in uh, replicating that uh, reproducing that protocol. And and again, we've seen that through case studies in the Soviet Union where within the Soviet, you know, the same program, uh, the small the smallpox weapon or the anthrax weapons were designed in different, in separate entities. And there were uh, the protocols, the um, uh, sample of the agent that was developed were sent to another institute for production or to develop the production process. Mm. And each time, uh, the, the the second institute received, you know, the the protocol, you know, and detailed in some case for the anthrax weapon, uh, they received four hundred pages of documentation. Uh, plus the the sample of the of the agent, and they were never able to produce it. It took them two years. They tried for two years. They were not able to produce it. So they they had to ask the authors of the weapon to come and work with them. And even with the authors of the um, uh, of the weapon present uh, on the site, it took three more years to eventually produce that anthrax weapon. And the anthrax weapon that was produced was a different one. It was not the one that was developed in originally because uh, there, that's um, another problem in replicating uh, the work of somebody else in a new environment mm. or e- even one's own work in a new environment. There's a process of translating 
that new technology or that work in a new environment because mm. the environment is different. And again, uh, that's valid for any kind of weapons, not just bio. Um, the environment is different. The expertise, local expertise is different. The technology they use is different, et cetera. And there's a need to adjust to that new environment. Mm. And the adjustment, adjustment leads to a reinvention. You have to come up with a new process, a new protocol uh, that is adapted to this new environment. And that's why every time you see this kind of transfer, um, even if it's done by the authors of the technology or the weapon or the process, uh, the translation process leads to a, a new type of protocol, a new type of process mm. that is adjusted to that specific environment. So uh, that is not cannot be transferred through the internet. The, these are things, the internet, uh, publications, you know, even uh, the methodology, met, methodology section of uh, scientific articles just tells you, uh, provides uh, limited and incomplete explicit information. Yeah. And it does not include any of the tacit form of knowledge that is required to reproduce the work. And that's why even in science, there's so much, uh, so many problems with reproducibility mm. uh, because you don't have everything that's needed. Uh, the documents do not provide all the information required. And when I say information, I mean tacit knowledge. Yeah. And I, I do wonder if there's like, you know, more diffuse stories that we can tell you. So there's like one emphasis, which is like, um, you know, did the internet... Um, like help people learn what the protocol for say smallpox is and were they then able to like make her and the answer there is like no like even if you like knew what the protocol was you probably wouldn't be able to synthesize it and in the case of smallpox you probably wouldn't be able to acquire the materials either because people are like really looking out for this like that's wrong um but there are like other stories i can tell here as well where i think this like dual use thing starts becoming like a real problem but it's like like if I want to learn biology, I'm sure that the internet like must have just like really helped um, in order to like let people take online courses, study the basics of biology, um, maybe even like acquire in like some very specific domains a lot of like pretty close to like expert like knowledge here from being able to access papers, um, being able to find out like where suppliers are, or even like applying to labs um, and just like you know letting people partake in like the scientific community much more so than before the internet. But there I can like, I think, tell more of a story of like, yes, like this technology does enable a broader part of like the human population to take part in science and to take part in like really incredibly like valuable activities. But of course, the downside of that will also be that like more people can now do bad things with these like technologies as well. And it's a less like clear cut story, but it is a story of the internet inadvertently like also increasing the biothreat landscape even if that like channel is like way too diffuse to take any um like direct or like clear policy action from um i wonder yet like if, if, if you make anything of that well again again uh one the information will be um incomplete mm. two you always need uh very much like new technologies you always need to assess uh the information in relation to the user if the information provides you, again, I'll, I'll use the case in the nuclear field because we have those examples. Uh, the uh, Libyans received uh, 
um, from uh, the CAN network uh, designs of a nuclear weapon that uh, the the Chinese had provided Pakistan and Pakistan, the Pakistani network, this CAN network was a, uh, led by a Pakistani, uh, provided those designs to uh, to Libya. Uh, and there were notes in English and in Chinese. So there were some, you know, markings here and there. Mm. So the design, you know, if you if you say, oh, my God, they have a design, a nuclear bomb design that's yeah. dangerous. You know, they have it. The challenge is how do they translate this design into an actual bomb? Mm. And for the for the uh, yeah, for the Libyans, they didn't have any expertise at all. They didn't have a nuclear technology, a nuclear industry. Mm. So they started with no knowledge. So in order to, to be able to use those designs, they had to first create that whole expertise in physics and right. you know, uh, mechanics and all that. Now, I'll give you the same example, but in the Soviet uh, case. So uh, in the uh, Manhattan Project, there was a spy called Klaus Fuchs who provided information about the American bomb to the Soviets. And the Soviets had already a, a program in place and they had the design in place. But when they received the information from Klaus Fuchs, they decided to drop their own and in the hopes that, you, you know, using having access to something that was already identified and, you know, uh, that they uh, worked on, etc., would save them some time. Yeah. Uh, and they wouldn't have to do all the calculation. They didn't have to do all the work necessary to come up with this, uh, with this design. And then they realized that it doesn't prevent, it doesn't uh, save time because in order to make this design work or this information work in this new environment they had first to check it and they ended up the soviets ended up having to redo the calculations and the work the laboratory work that they were hoping to save by getting information through spies from the um, U.S. nuclear weapons program, so and, and in the Soviets had you know they had a uh, you know very uh, brilliant people in physics and and they had already set up their nuclear weapons program. So they were that was very different from the Libyan case, mm. but at the same time, uh, a design or a protocol are again, explicit information that do not include all of the tacit uh, knowledge, but also all of the reasons why some decisions were made. Why is this a, why do you use, do you have this specific design? Right. And why do you have this specific protocol? Uh, and all these decisions are made based on tacit knowledge and experimentation in a specific environment. Mm. And that's not replicated in the explicit document. And that's what we're missing, that, you know, that uh, the document, uh, the Internet is just a way to um, make uh, information more easily accessible. Mm. Doesn't mean that having access to information will allow, uh, will facilitate its use yeah. by any kind of users. I think that's a really important and, and interesting point. Maybe just a final question to kind of like wrap up the section here then is, again, when we think about 
AI and especially like large language models, um, are there like conditions where you would be like, oh, I think here this is like a route that they could um, transmute tacit knowledge. Maybe one direct option, which I've heard and I'm, I'm curious for like your reaction to, is that um, there are now just like a lot more like online like lab notebooks where people and scientists like document like what they're doing like day by day or like what experiments they're doing. And this feels just like a lot richer in order to have these types of insights or you know have a basis to like synthesize such insights from than just the methodology sections of, of papers, which are like much shorter. Um, and then there are also like some indirect routes I can imagine, which is rather than you know chat GPTN telling me uh, like what that like tacit knowledge is, um, it's telling me like which lab professors uh, I should like reach out to in order to like chat and who are like maybe also like willing to speak to me um, or, or which kind of like labs are like the relevant things that I should then interact like in the real world with. Um, mm -hmm. I think a perfectly legitimate answer here is like neither of these things scare me and like I just think this is like a really big barrier. Uh, but I'm curious, yeah, if there are like conditions here or like things that you would want to have policy makers uh, keep a like look out for um, where you think they should be yet yeah, like um, focusing their, their attention. I'm going to disclose, <laughs> I'm working on a new project uh, and I'm still developing it. So, uh, but the idea is to look at AI uh, in relation to the user and the developer, because you need to, in order to understand how AI is going to help different types of users, particularly if you're thinking of threat issues, uh, threat um, agents, etc. You need to understand how the users, the developers, have developed this uh, uh, this new technology. So, for example, when you look at AI and ChatGPT, I mean, you probably read all of those articles that uh, um, of people uh, testing ChatGPT uh, to, uh, for example. Uh, figure out uh, what a certain person has said about someone who is known in a certain field. What did they say about specific issues? Mm. And chat GPT would come up with a narrative that makes a lot of sense with footnotes and, and quotes, etc. And someone who um, doesn't know that person uh, and and there was an article in the in the bulletin of the atomic scientists who a uh, nuclear expert nuclear weapons expert uh, did use ChatGPT to find out uh, how what ChatGPT would find out about himself and about what he said and what he did etc about certain uh, certain issues and um, he found that the narratives makes a lot of sense. But it was filled with um, uh, made-up information. Sometimes the quotes were completely made up. Sometimes the sources were made up. Uh, but on the surface, when you read it, he said he he felt like he could have said this. He could have said that, mm. but he didn't. And he uh, and there was a case where uh, ChatGPT uh, quoted him while he was testifying before Congress. He never testified before Congress. The whole thing was made up. Yeah. So the question is, and we and that that relates also to the issue of big data. Big data was another uh, uh, you know source of worry in terms of uh, weapons development. Uh, that if you have access to a lot of data, then you may be able to do something um, threatening with that information. And the question is, what's the quality of the data that is input in the technology? 
So for ChatGPT, there was a problem of the quality of data and the fact that the user had to tell ChatGPT, don't make up stuff. I want you to just find things that are, and ChatGPT is going to find information out there, but we don't know what is the quality of that information out there. So the user becomes important, right? So if you don't have the ability to evaluate the information that is given to you, then you may be led to towards a path that is going to waste all of of your resources, right? Which in a way is good, you know? (laughs) In the field of non-proliferation, yeah. Um, so, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out, you know, the, with these different tools, w- to what extent uh, they can help ha- help certain users, and what are the assumptions and uh, the tacit knowledge that is um, in, of the of the developers that is introduced in the machine. Uh, that can make it, or the the technology that can make it hard to use by uh, certain types of users. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds like a really interesting uh, project, and I'm super excited to see where, when uh, your results come out, if if they are like public, to 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 see what you find there. I think that we maybe need to like um, begin wrapping up the interview. So we have some like kind of final questions that we always like asking guests, um, just to like finish things off. One feels very like similar to, to what we talked about um, just now, which is um, for people early on in their uh, careers, uh, imagine 20 or like kind of early 30 year olds, um, what are some projects that you would love, you know, people who are like keen uh, to, to do stuff in this space to like work on? Are there like any questions that are like on your mind um, or that you think are like great opportunities here? And the field being doesn't have to be just AI uh, and bioterrorism, yeah. but just like bio, uh, like weapons and, and bio misuse uh, overall. Yeah, I think one very interesting uh, study would be to look at, uh, go back several years uh, back, maybe decades, um, uh, and look at what was said about new technologies, Mm. and then uh, measure the development of that technology over time, and was it able to do what people expected it to do? Right. So, for example, in the nuclear field, when uh, nuclear energy was developed and nuclear weapons were tested, at the time, um, we thought, or there were assessments, even by people, you know, scientists, not just either general public who didn't know anything about this, mm. but uh, there were assessments that soon we'd have cars powered with uh, nuclear energy, our watches would be powered with nuclear energy, our homes would be all powered with nuclear energy, and none of this happened, right? So. Uh, so looking back uh, in time, you know, w- how much of the expectations uh, associated with the new technology have actually materialized? Mm. And are there any patterns that we can see uh, in terms of uh, uh, technology, actual technology use. Yeah, Because yeah. the pattern that I see is this narrative. It's always, again, from zero to 100. And then we realize, oh, it's not that simple. So the technology uh, maybe, you know, increases t- uh, slightly and then there, it plateaus for a while and there's, there's a, an incremental increase and then another plateau. Is there something, you know, 
is there a pattern of this start of this type with all new technologies? Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I, I can think of some counter examples, like top of my head. Like one is um, I used to work on more like kind of climate change stuff, and the famous graph there is like solar PV prices and the uh, mm. International Energy Agency always assuming each year that like now we're going to hit the plateau of solar is not going to get any cheaper than this, um, and like year on year. Uh, it always like be expectations, and I think it's like continuing to decline. Um, yeah. yeah, some. I mean, AI also feels like you know not that dissimilar. A lot of people said it would peter out, and uh, at least yeah. for now, like scaling laws still still seem to be holding. But I think this is really interesting, and especially in the specific case of like how technologies might be misused and whether threats, the things that people were worried about about how these technologies might be misused early on, ended up generalizing yeah. to yeah. Um, like what things turned out to be seems seems really important and really good. Um, I know that especially post nine eleven, I think there was um, a lot of forecasts around bioterrorism included. Um, and I know that a lot of these like ended up not looking very great. Um, so yeah, I think this is a really interesting uh, set of questions that that people can like mm -hmm. um, for sure pick things from. Um, the penultimate question is, uh, yeah, can you recommend three uh, resources for people to learn more about things that we've talked about here? Um, anything that you found maybe particularly useful uh, in your own journey, but also um, just general reading recommendations? Uh, read my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the challenge is that there's very little um, information gathered in one source or in one place. Uh, when I did my research, I had to go in different places, interview people. So there's a lot of information that, that's not out there accessible. Uh, but I do have a project um, with, uh, again, Kathleen Vogel, where we um, uh, for this oral history project, we interviewed and filmed some of the scientists um, that we, uh, Soviet and American scientists, and we started a um, a website where we uh, put in some of the interviews and the transcripts of the um, of the interviews. And the website is called the Anthrax Di Diaries, hmm. um, and it's housed by Cornell University. Um, and, you know, it's just the beginning. Um, we had a grant to do that work and uh, we ran out of money. So we haven't been able to put in all of the uh, interviews, but we're still trying to get funding in order to, uh, you know, putting all the interviews and the transcripts, etc. Um, that that's a source that doesn't exist anywhere because you don't have uh, live interviews of former actual former bioweapon scientists, not just people who know biology, right? Um, and talking about different issues, technological problems, social problem, uh, organization, you know, ethical issues. How did they, uh, what I found fascinating was that most of them had a, uh, a lot of them had um, a medical degree. So how did they uh, reconcile their oath to do good and not do harm with the development of bioweapons that were going to kill people with a lot of a lot of pain. You know, it's not uh, a weapon that kills instantly. Uh, so there was there was a lot of um, a lot of things like that that I think should be out there in the public, and we started to do that. Hopefully, we'll get funding to to continue the project and put in you know uh, put all of those data of the, of this. Um, information out there so people can hear from the horse mouth 
this information, not just from people, you know, experts like me, but those who actually made those weapons or attempted to make those weapons. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so the, this one, this project, uh, the Anthrax Diaries, is accessible. You know, just uh, Google Anthrax Diaries, and you can find some of the interviews already out there. But uh, Kathleen Vogel wrote an article, a, a book also called um, Phantom Menace. <laughs> okay, that's a good name. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there she looked, she looks at also biology and the challenges, uh, all of the. Uh, several of the controversial experiments that were um, done in the early 2000 uh, and that were also um, viewed as threats uh, because they would help, they were viewed as, you know, giving a blueprint to terrorists to develop bioweapons. And that includes the, the synthesis of the poliovirus, uh, all of the work that the Venter Institute uh, did, um, uh, and other kinds of research project, and where she went and talked to the scientists who did the research, and she found that you know there are there's a big distinction between what can be uh, what uh, the estimate of what could be done with those uh, with this work, and what what actually could be done. Um, and she emphasizes again this issue of tacit explicit knowledge and how. An experiment uh, is usually, even if though, even though it's um, uh, presented as something that's easy because it relies mostly, like the poliovirus experiment or synthesis of the poliovirus, relies on information of the internet, on technology that's uh, commercially available that anyone can have access to. But the whole experiment hinged upon this issue of producing the good cell extract. And that's something that doesn't use high tech. It's completely, you know, experimentation, learning how to do it, etc. And she found that that was the same issue and that even though an experiment was uh, presented as happening very quickly and easily, it in fact relied on expertise that had been developed over decades. And that's specific to that laboratory. So that's another good um, source to uh, to look. Great, and then yeah, just the like very last question to to wrap things up is um, where can people find uh, you and like your own work online? Like, what's the what's the best resource? Uh, so George Mason University, um, uh, the the biodefense program <clears throat> in Arlington. Uh, but you know, just Google my name and you'll find all my publications uh, out there. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, great. And we'll we'll add links to both the books that you mentioned um, and also your like academic website and everything uh, to our transcript. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, then the very last thing to say is, uh, yeah, Sonia, thanks so much for, for joining us in the, in the great conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm uh, always happy to, th to talk about this, especially uh, <laughs> with people who ask questions that very few people ask generally when we do, when we do a threat assessment. So thank you. That was Sonia Ben-Wagram-Gormley on barriers to bioweapons. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Ben-Wagram-Gormley. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. If you enjoyed this podcast and find it valuable, then one of the best ways to help us out is to write a review on whatever platform you're listening to. You can also give us a shout out on Twitter, we're at hearthisidea. 
We also do have a short feedback survey, uh, which should only take you somewhere between five to 10 minutes to fill out. We read every submission, find them tremendously useful, and as a thank you, you'll also get a free book from us. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and thanks very much to you for listening.